Welcome to all those tuning into yet another edition of the Southwest Climate Podcast. As always, brought to you from the Clemus Penthouse Podcast Studios. Why doesn't this floor two? It has. Why doesn't it have more windows? <laughs> if it's a penthouse. Well, that's the that's the joke. Oh, okay, fair <laughs> it's, enough. It's floor two. Yeah. Okay, so we've formally been dubbed the Monsoon and El Nino Show, but I'm changing the the, the scene a little bit today, and uh, we're going to talk more about the monsoon and tropical storms. You've given up on El Nino already? It's too early in the podcast for that. <laughs> it is. It is early in the podcast, but I'm not sure it's too early for giving, <laughs> giving up on up. El Nino. At least talking about it as as we have. All Although right. we will talk about the El Nino, so, so stick around. We've had a pretty exciting last 30 days. Yeah, yeah. It's been, in September, a pretty wet September by most accounts, mm-hmm. brought to us in large part by a couple tropical storms. Yeah. Odile, most recently, and Norbert, which was the one that brought heavy precipitation to Phoenix more than anything else and and that part of of the state. So Yeah, Tucson didn't miss up on that right, one it either. Yeah, it, we, it was that. a yeah, it was like a metro metroplex event. That's right. But but Phoenix stole our thunder a little bit. They did. We tried we were kind of trying to catch up later in the day. So let's let's work backwards because I think it's worth highlighting uh what happened during Odeal and then maybe we can touch on a little bit of 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 Norbert. So okay. Odile um, struck the Baja California. It actually became the strongest storm, strongest tropical storm or hurricane. Hurricane, right? Yeah, category three to hit that region, which is actually quite quite surprising. It is surprising. I mean, surprising that that Baja sticking out there in that warm water in the Pacific hasn't been struck every year. But you know, they've kind of dodged many bullets, so to speak, over the years. So they got walloped, and then that thing tracked north. And northeast, actually. Yeah, it hugged. It actually hugged the circulation. Um, the eye went right in inland, right over uh, Cabo San Lucas, in the circulation center of the eye, and um, hugged right along the spine of Baja, and kind of tore itself apart, but wandered north right up into the um, very base of the Gulf of California. But did it tear itself apart like those storms usually do when they when they go across land, or was there still like remnants that when it when it was coming north? into our neck of the woods, mm-hmm. there were still remnants that were somewhat Yeah, odd. right. I mean, it, you know, the, the Bajas, you know, it's a peninsula. It's pretty narrow. And relative to the, the scale of a hurricane, it's not like it crossing Florida or penetrating inland within the continental U.S. So it, it, was, a, it was kind of a really interesting situation where it, it was able to maintain quite a bit of strength, quite a bit of circulation as it wandered up over land, up the Baja, and then actually strengthened slightly when it the center circulation crossed back over the warmer water of the Gulf of California and the northern northern end of the Gulf. Yeah, and so that delivered a whole bunch of precipitation to places south of Tucson, but it it didn't deliver the kind of precipitation that people are anticipating. Yeah, oh, just a, a quite a forecasting scenario. I mean, I'm I'm really glad that I don't have to make forecasts for a living. You know, I can kind of banter as a scientist here and softball stuff around but you know the people in charge of making those forecasts were dealing with a really really potentially dangerous situation and had to thread a needle basically on the forecast and i think they gave it their all and they um put together i think a forecast that was convergent with a lot of the models that suggested that bullseye was going to be over um definitely over southeast arizona with some of it tracking right over tucson and in the end the forecast was really only off by about 50 60 70 miles which you think about is pretty amazing, 
But, you know, that 50, 60, 70 miles grouped in either, you know, close to a million people or not. And so that's that's really where, you, you know, you had this population sort of getting ready for something that never materialized, which, again, I think in, in the end is still important to be ready for the potentiality of what that thing could have actually brought to us. I mean, is it just it's just so difficult to actually predict the the exact track that is that why it was slightly off i mean even it was, it was, it was slightly off even on like thursday right yeah, oh yeah well the, the the models um in trying to track odeal were having real trouble placing it you know in real time i mean there's not real great observations south of here it was interacting with mountains and you, you think about on the east coast you don't really have that and you don't really have that when when hurricanes are kind of coming in land they're not interacting with topography so there's a spine of mountains along Baja, and there's there's mountains in Mexico. So that that all becomes problematic. And so this thing was located in a bit of a, a data poor area in northern Mexico. You know, basically every model run was giving a slightly different resolution, but you know, some of them converging on very very heavy rains over um, much of southeast Arizona, including the Tucson metro area. Well, if you look to the south in Douglas, for example, am I looking at Douglas? Yeah, in Bisbee. Rather, they got what looks to be like close to three and a half, four inches of rain. Oh, yeah. There was a couple, there was a run of days there. You know, they picked up rain with Odile. And then the day after, where they had, you know, six inch totals coming out of it. So, the, you know, that for, we were getting those kinds of amounts forecast for the Tucson metro area. So they just happened down the road. So, you know, it wasn't by any means a blown forecast. It was just off slightly. slightly off. We should all be probably thankful for that, even though oh, we, sort, know, of, we, we yeah. sort of want to wake up. We were using the analogy before for any of those people who grew up in the, the Northeast or even somewhere in the Northern regions where you had snow days. Yeah. You kind of had that excitement that there was going to be some like giant event yeah. and it didn't materialize. And then there's sort of this depression's not the right word, but there's let, it's, you're let down. Had it struck, there would have been quite a bit of damage. I think so too. And that, that I've been thinking about this because I'm thinking, well, what, what could we have done differently? And I, I think there were a lot of us, and largely in the community, I think it's you know both on the forecasting side, but then also the population. There's a lot of us from the Midwest who I think were kind of likening this to a snow day. But snow days, you wake up and you go out and you play in snow drifts and you have a great time. You make snowmen. Epic <laughs> flooding washes houses away. It's not the yeah. same thing. I mean, it There's kills nothing, people. It kills people. There's nothing necessarily fun about losing a bridge, losing a house. There are a lot of us sort of cheering on. We wanted the spectacle of it, but I don't think we knew what we were asking for. And I'm glad we didn't get it because right. I don't think many of us it would have been a good a good thing for. Certainly interesting from a scientific sort of spectacle perspective, but I still don't really even understand. And I think this is where we need to look forward here. Um, when we think about sort of weather readiness with events like this, we need to be more explicit in our discussions about what does an event like this actually do to Tucson? What roads flood? You know, how do they flood? Whose houses are at risk? What bridges get shut down? What populations get isolated? Because I think if we would have went through that and we had a much clearer picture, and again, I don't know if that's even available, but if we thought that through, people may have been thinking more, this is serious, and I kind of hope that it doesn't materialize the way that it could. Well, for those who aren't living in Tucson, that event created preparations like none that I've experienced since I've been living here. Me too. I mean, the National Weather Service, among others, I mean, there was people that were uh, putting out sandbags. Right. Classes, the University of Arizona had two or three warnings about canceling classes Mm -hmm. a couple days in advance. Meetings were shut down. So there was this widespread response to the potential. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the disappointment is that 
that in a way created an expectation that wasn't that that it didn't live up to that. Yeah, right. And and exactly. And again, I think we liken it to other types of weather events. Those of us from the east, like a snowstorm, which become they're dangerous, but they are often benevolent in the sense that you just sort of hunker down and you you know you deal with the snow on the other side of it, and it kind of kind of. Um, shuts everything down. You know, people sort of stay down. But this is that's not that's not what a epic flooding event in a mountainous terrain really does. And so I think though that a lot of the responses that came out of the preparations were not really well thought through. You mm. know, I mean, like there was this sort of vague understanding that it was going to be a lot of rain, but we didn't really know how that would affect the transportation network. So there was this out of abundance of caution of saying, well, maybe we should cancel stuff so people aren't messing around or getting caught in, in different places without, you know, maybe understanding that it was going to affect certain washes, certain right. bridge closures and stuff like that, that there may have been certain responses that made a lot of sense. Like this idea that I still don't understand, which is the the opening of, you know, publicly freely available sandbags without really any guidance for what you would do with them or, or who should use who them, should use where them. they should be used. And I, I know it was yeah. sort of up to you that there are probably people experiencing flooding problems throughout the summer, but was it in context to, did they have trouble during the Norbert event, which we'll talk about, which was that real long morning rain event um, with tons of moisture and it flooded streets out and we actually had two loss of lives in that event. One um, here in Tucson, one in Phoenix. Right? One here in Tucson, one in Metro Tucson in a yeah. very, very busy you know, just a neighborhood setting um, where a car was washed away. So driving through a wash. So it didn't make sense to me. Like if people were having flooding, they should just have sandbags in their yards for the entire monsoon season, because this was definitely going to be a little different character. But how, how did it how did it fit within the, the context of other types of past events and other monsoon rain that we usually get here in Tucson? Yeah. So it's worth stepping back a little bit and talking about the sort of climatology of these of these big events. So yeah, that's, the, yep. the mm-hmm. tropical storms tend to be the ones that create the most widespread, maybe not widespread, but most damage. I think widespread is a good, good way of thinking about it too, yeah. Right, yeah. so we do get these monsoon flash floods that happen pretty much every year, and they can happen throughout the monsoon season. But when we get the incursion of a dying or decaying tropical storm, that's that's the one that we really like perk our ears up to. And that's what happened in the, in the uh, with Norbert and uh, Odile. That tends to happen in September and October. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Climatologically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we were looking up a paper written by researchers here, right? Yeah. Dr. Kim Wood and Dr. Liz Ritchie, who are in uh, University of Arizona Atmospheric Sciences. Yeah. Both East Pacific hurricane specialists, which is a you know a real unique right. so area the, to study. The peak of the tropical storms tend to be in July and, and August, but those tropical storms tend to be steered toward Hawaii. Mm-hmm. steered westward. So they form in the warm waters of, of the East Pacific. At that time of the summer, that area is under more, it's under easterly flow. That's right. Um, so so again, the storms are being directed out out westward. Later on in the, in the, in the summer, the sort of transition to the, uh, the fall and, and winter circulation moves the, the transition between the easterlies and westerlies a little bit south. Mm-hmm. So you have a depression of what we call the monsoon ridge, which enables storms to actually be entrained in, in wester, westerly flow and recurve more or less into the western U.S. Mm-hmm. Is that more or less? Yeah, I mean, you think of that high pressure, um, cir- uh, clockwise circulation in the northern hemisphere. So the ridge is, you know, that high is um, up over us, if not north of us. 
um, in the early part of the monsoon season, which is really important for us, and that characterizes our early monsoon. That's the um, subtle shift in wind, the import of moisture, helping with that instability in our early season moisture. So south of that high clockwise circulation again, you're getting easterly. So in southern Mexico off of the coast um, in the East Pacific there, the wind is out of the east. And if you remember those early storms, I mean, we had a really interesting East Pacific hurricane season with um, some really epic big hurricanes forming in May and some other um, Category 5 hurricanes in the East Pacific and then some real strong um, pushing westward hurricanes, one, maybe two. across. I know one for sure. The eye actually crossed the big island of mm. Hawaii, which apparently has never happened before or hasn't happened in a long time. I'm not sure the, the record's on that. So that, that in itself is a rare event. So that's the early season. Right. And then that progression, just like you said, is that retreat of the monsoon ridges you get later into August, earlier in September, you start to have more of a, you're on the now on the west side of that high pressure system. So your wind sort of shifts more now to the south and can redirect those storms more towards the northwest, north, and even northeast, depending on that, that position of the high. In September and October, based on this uh, study done by Wood and, and, and Ritchie, about 37% of the tropical storms form in September and October, but account for 58% of yeah. The ones that strike, the one that strike land. Mm -hmm. So it's disproportionate because of what you just talked about. So our eyes are uh, and ears are, are perked up to this time of the year because that's when we experience these tropical storms. It's also worth noting that this year, one of the strongest tropical storms happened, Marie, not too long ago. I yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I believe. Mm -hmm. But uh, that nobody really paid attention to that because that just went went out. Uh, went out to see. There wasn't right. anybody there. Yeah, Marie was in late August, the last week of August, in yeah, Category Five. Category Five. Yep. Not yeah. to be confused with the uh, cult classic Category Seven. Not not Category Seven. We haven't pushed to Category Seven yet, which is um, probably a good thing. Yeah. You know, that could have been. It's one Tucson. of Mike's favorite movies. It is. For those. I I have, the genre of terrible disaster movies is unfortunately one of my vices. <laughs> it is worth noting that the Tropical Hurricane Center. Forecast or it's CPCs, uh, Climate Prediction Centers, tropical Eastern Tropical Forecast predicted an active season this year, somewhere between seven and ten named storms. We're sort of we're right there. I think we've had nine. Mm -hmm. I think we're at nine right now with Polo. Um, that just that just yeah, happened. Rachel is there's there's a de there's depression right now off the coast, which may end up turning into Tropical Storm Rachel. So I mean, and it. it you know, before we go into the El Nino too, we should talk a little bit about Norbert because I think we've got the, the oh, yeah. tales of two different systems that really characterize um, September. You know, and so you know, next month we'll actually go through in detail the the whole monsoon season. But it's been a really interesting progression from the types of events and the frequency of the events and um, the real transition into this September situation, which has been largely driven by east pacific tropical storm activity i i think if we didn't have such an active east pacific and so much moisture just voice the south of here this would have been a very very different um, month yeah very very different monsoon if not a very dry september well, even phoenix yeah oh yeah yeah phoenix too yeah i mean we, we can look at you know tucson and phoenix in the september within one or two days picked up um well phoenix is the extreme example with norbert getting its, I believe, all-time daily record precipitation amount of um, over three and a half inches at their airport. One 24-hour total. That's the daily. The daily that single-handedly pushed their monsoon precipitation way above average. They were, they were, it was a pretty dire, it, well, it was interesting because they had lots and lots of 
convection around Phoenix, lots of dust storms. You, you probably everybody's seen that there's been these just amazing sunset photos with dust and haboobs and collapsing thunderstorms all around Phoenix all summer long. Only a couple of them striking or hitting the airport, which is one of their main sort of, you know, we always have this problem with measuring the monsoon. We only got a couple of key gauges, even though we know it rains all around the, those sites. We have the same problem with our airport down in Tucson. But just looking at that day with Norbert, you have you know, over three and a half inches and, you know, pushing their total. It was almost 80% of their annual total to the date happened in that one day. So yeah, they had, they were hovering right around one inch prior, prior to that yeah, three and a half with inches. The, you know, a couple of events, you know, again, this is the airport with a one inch event here and then a half an event, a couple of half inch events, but not real active. And then, and all that occurring pretty late in the season as well, um, clustered around, I think August, the early season, Precipitation prior to prior to mid August, mid August, yeah. yeah. And so Odile, not a player for Phoenix, you know, because of the track of it and um, that the center circulation, which was expected to bring the bullseye precipitation across Southeast Arizona, got tore apart. Circulation that was really driving the the precipitation kind of scooted off to the east over northern Mexico. Did clip Cochise County, and we did have some amazing precipitation amounts. Near record flows on the San Pedro, water coming out of Mexico, flooding in the Chiricahuas that actually um, blew out the Forest Service Road there and affected some of the communities there. So it was a problem. I mean, Odile was a problem. Right. And it tore up some of our rural communities. And probably good that it didn't hit Tucson straight on. What was fundamentally different about Norbert and Odile? That's a real good question. Okay, so, so Odile actually was a remnant circulation as it was moving towards like Tucson. it was still circulating it was still circulating it had a closed circulation it was very weak um the pressures had come up quite a bit so it wasn't tropical the the winds had weakened quite a bit but you could certainly still see the closed circulation like you'd see in an eye which would, the winds would be much stronger so this is what we call remnant circulation that remnant circulation had a ton of precip with it and that circulation itself will drive the dynamics you need for the precipitation so when you have all those things together it can produce really high rainfall rates in a kind of a, a moving blob going forward. And so that was the expectation is that having those pieces come together over Tucson was going to drive all that rain. But it fell apart much quicker than I think anyone anticipated. And there's some indication that the models had, when it was in the northern Gulf and over northern Mexico, had thought it was way stronger than it was. We're over-initializing or, or mm. thinking it was much stronger. And so as they kept you know, forecasting 6, 8, 12 hours ahead, they brought this behemoth rainmaker over us but in in reality since we really couldn't see it right um it was much weaker and so it just it didn't have the oomph to be able to do it right so that's norbert or that's i'm sorry that was odile Odile. yeah Yeah. so norbert actually never made landfall it basically you know wandered off of the west coast of um, baja and up off the coast of um, basically san diego but what it did was it was more of an assist in the sense that it helped induce a gulf surge of moisture. And that's where we had moisture values. We use this idea of precipitable water, which is this, you know, it's a magical, if you could condense out all the water in a column of air above you, then you'd get about two inches of water. So that's the that's what it we was were at getting. that time. You're getting about two inches yeah. out of Tucson, which I believe was the record for September at that point in time. So, in Tucson? Tucson, okay. yeah. And we, we have to do this with balloons, okay. the weather balloon network. So... That was in place. And we also, this was another little thing that was at play was there was remnants of Tropical Storm Dolly, Mm. which had 
uh, made landfall in, in um, Texas, Mexico area and had moved up out of the southeast towards us. So we had a convergence of two moisture sources. We had a super deep layer of um, as wet atmosphere as you normally get here, if not record. And that in its own right created a super unstable atmosphere and some very, very un wet rainers. Uh, you know, Bob Maddox on his Mad Weather blog had, had some really cool posts about um, noting that when we had these rain events in Phoenix and Tucson, they were um, accompanied by very, very little lightning. Mm. And that's a real classic characteristic, characteristic of having tropical warm cloud type rain processes. You don't have enough ice in the clouds or the convection isn't deep enough to cause electrification in the clouds. So those types of situations and that type of situation in particular was just able to wring out epic amounts of water and rainfall rates over an extended period of time, multiple hours over first Phoenix. Yeah, and then it happened to us later in the yep. later and in the day. I think it, it all stopped in, in Phoenix around was, early morning. It was right around yeah. rush hour and it was yeah. like from two to eight AM. Yeah, exactly. And um they had a little little what we call like meso mesoscale um vortice, you know, a little bit of a swirl in the atmosphere, just a tiny little bit of dynamics to set off the powder keg of water and instability in the atmosphere and super efficiently rain it out. I mean there were some reports in Phoenix metro area of one day totals exceeding six inches. These are backyard rain gauges of folks. And, you know, parts of Phoenix are old converted farmlands. They're flat. So water doesn't, it just basically pools up and flows towards the lowest spot. So they had some very crazy underpass flooding in all sorts of situations here. The outflows from those storms pushed um, southeast you know, you think about that, right. and we started raining on the outflows of those storms. In so Bob, we got an assist. We got from an, an assist. assist. Yeah, it was the Norbert assist of the Gulf Surge, a dolly sort of alley oop, and then a um, an outflow behind the back. Uh, pass. Yep, exactly. It was yeah, it was some it was some definitely professional level uh, playing going on with the atmosphere there. <laughs> that's that's enough basketball. That's pretty pretty much yeah, pretty much. <laughs> we could do football. It's that, it's that <laughs> we, time it's of more year. seasonal. That's right. <laughs> it's a collision between two. Exactly. Okay, so the transition into ENSO, because there seems to be, at least with the forecast, going back to the tropical, Eastern Pacific tropical storm forecast, there was an ENSO expression there, which is that during El Nino events, the sea surface temperatures tend to be a little bit warmer, and there, there tend to be a reduction in wind shear, uh, which can reinforce the formation of of tropical storms, which is part of why they forecasted for slightly above average yeah, you know, and this is interesting too because remember that East Pacific hurricane forecast was made back in April or May, right. right? And this has been the strangest El Nino event because it's had all the ingredients and has never materialized the way any of us thought. And so we still had those sea surface temperatures above anomalous warm. We did. We had an East Pacific expression equatorially, but I, I keep hearing, and I think that we're going to really have to sort this out with some more research. Is that the warm water off of the coast of Mexico and California has been more due to a, a change in the weather or the wind pattern. There's been sort of a lack of upwelling mm. um, that's accumulated over the last couple of years. There's actually this paper had just come out in preceding the National Academy of Sciences just this week, which is becoming a little controversial. One of the authors is Nate Mantua, who um, was one of the, he's kind of the grandfather of the Pacific Decadal Oscillation. He's an oceanographer. He, I think it's a pretty solid study, but has noted that a lot of the 
the sea surface temperature warming in the East Pacific has been due to changes in overlying wind circulation and lack of upwelling along the coast, which would then lead to some warming pattern that you get there. So this could be related back to the ridiculously resilient ridge in the last couple of years. Probably is related to this pool of warm water. Is that a technical the, term? I'm not sure it really is. <laughs> I, I think that we now use it to the, we should just shorthand it with the triple R or something like that. And then people will, will totally lose track of what it actually means. Since the El Nino expression has been so weak in the atmosphere, I'm not sure it, it mattered. Right. Okay. So, so I think it's actually been the, the warm water, the exceptionally warm water in the East Pacific and some cooperation with the atmosphere with the shear part of it too. Well, it it's the pattern of enhanced activity in the East Pacific and suppressed activity in the Atlantic. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Has happened this year. And it that's has. sort of the classic. Yeah. Yeah. That El is Nino. the interplay between it. Yeah. So whether or not El Nino has exerted a, the influence that we thought it was when the when the uh, forecasts were made remains to be seen. Probably not. Well, I mean, again, yeah. that's a really good point, though, because it it's coming true. But is it been was it solely an El Nino? Was that the reason? And I'm not. It, I'm sure it's a part of it because there's been better and weaker expressions of El Nino in the atmosphere throughout the last six months. But yeah, you're right. The the classic, you know, the sort of really suppressed Atlantic enhanced um, East Pacific, which again, we have not seen in a long time. I mean, if you look back at the East Pacific hurricane activity, it was just pulling up last year, a lot of super weak, mm. um, very, very short-lived events. Like stuff would get going in the warm water in East Pacific and it would immediately get torn apart or drift into cold water. There's, it's just a playground for, for tropical activity now in the East Pacific. So has anything changed in the last month about El Nino? We're still waiting. You know, I guess so that's not, that's not new. <laughs> that's <laughs> it's what not we said for five well, months. Yeah. So, so, you know, you and I were talking about this, but there's, there's, you know, there's been some media coverage on it, um, in the last couple of days, but it, you know, this idea of El Nino's last hurrah, there's a, another secondary slug of warm water kind of moving just below the surface across the equatorial Pacific. Um, again, what we call these Kelvin waves. You know, you think of it in as a slug of warm water, I think is reasonable, warmer than average water, um, is going to make its way to the surface in the next month or so. And the idea that the atmosphere will now pay attention to this and get its act together. And there's already actually the Southern Oscillation Index has started to trend in the right direction. Um, there's some other metrics in the atmospheric end of things um, that have trended in a more of an El Nino-ish state. So the fact that it's the atmosphere is already kind of getting more El Nino ready, right? And and the ocean will show up with its last push, certainly. And you see this in the models now, seeing that it will sink up finally right. six months later than we than we've seen in the past, in the past six months that. We think it's going to finally right. The probabilities catch. are still fairly high, 60%, 70% for the El Nino, which is pretty high probabilities. This is really late. The El Nino should have really been in place by midsummer. And, um, I mean, if you see a sort of climatological, they well, they lock into it and they peak uh, in, in winter. So, right. like, the, you, you get that sort of the onset of the base conditions in summerish. Uh, and then the peaking of the event in midwinter and then the decline in the, in the following spring. So the fact that we haven't locked into that, you know, we've crossed into the threshold of El Nino. This is, this is like, we're on the later side of things. Yeah. And this is what the concern was is like, it does it now or just doesn't do it. Right. And we have had events that have come on this late. Absolutely. They're not as common or as frequent as you normally get these more 
sort of midsummer ones. The Kelvin wave. We probably should explain that. So this, let me let me take a shot at this. Please one. do. I'm glad you're going to take. Because I've actually tried writing about this a number of times. It's not, it's it's not easy, but I but I thought of a of, of a way here. So basically, what happens typically is you get these. It's during it's easterly flow in in the tropics, and so you get all this water being pushed by the easterly flow westward. When that wind relaxes a bit, due to gravity, that stacking of the water sort of sloughs sloshes back eastward, that basically sets off a wave. So it's basically a wave of warmer water moving counter to the typical direction of the winds because the winds were uh, slackened. And then that, that the slacken of the winds can have a couple different mechanisms. It can have like just these tropical storms that cause uh, atmospheric flow to go to go east, or it can be these Magellan oscillations that, that occur, which I don't actually fully understand. But more or less, it's this it's this weakening of the easterly winds that causes a wave of water to migrate eastward. One of the interesting things about a, a Calvin wave in particular is that since it's it's got it's a long time wise long moving wave. I'm used to know the stats on you know moves fairly slow, but like a walking it's it moves at about a walking pace of a normal human being. Takes a while to get across. Takes a while for it to get across. Any sort of fluid that moves in the ocean or atmosphere at that time scale is subject to the Coriolis force. And this is the interesting thing is is that since it's at the equator, it's trapped along um, the equator. So if it, if it has any deviation north or south, it's corrected back across the equator. So it's the, what we call equatorially trapped Calvin waves. So that's what sort of it it's guides path it. Path dependent. Path dependent. It guides its it guide its path is sort of predetermined to actually um, wander around the equator all the way to the the other side of the Pacific Ocean, which is kind of a cool thing in its own right. We had a good question about ENSO forecasting. How are these forecasts made? What are the models that are included in the ENSO forecasting? So we'll take we'll take a shot at this. There's a lot of models that go into this. There's something like 16 dynamical models. There's another nine mm-hmm. statistical models. Right. The IRI, the Institute for International Research on Climate and Society, along with the Climate Prediction Center, they, and there's a whole bunch of modeling groups, but these are the ones that sort of coordinate it. There's all these simulations from these different models that project the temperatures in a particular region in tropical Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. That temperature then is correlated with whether, or it's, determines whether or not we call it an El Nino or La Nino or, or neutral conditions. So the answer to the models is there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Yeah, there, there are multiple university and agencies within the United States. There's international uh, models by different European modeling groups, um, Japan. Um, and we also make the distinction, too, that there are there's a dynamical model, um, which would be the sort of explicit physical equations, mathematical models that are sort of ingesting information and trying to resolve the fluid and thermodynamics of the ocean and the atmosphere. And then there are these statistical models, which would be things like taking past time series and looking for patterns or doing statistical analyses on them. And they both have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, So the idea then is to use all this information with its strengths and weaknesses to try to see if there's some convergence in all of these different models, which have, again, strengths and weaknesses. So if they all start to say the same thing, there's some idea that there may be some more certainty or more confidence in it. Or if they all say exactly opposite things, then you are in a situation where you have very little confidence in where the models are going. If they're all saying something similar, we have more faith, that, or more confidence rather, that the forecast will be one way versus the other. That's kind of what the, the term robust is used. If, mm-hmm. 
if they're all coming to a similar conclusion, then we have more confidence in them. And they put probabilities on it through different statistical techniques, but it's all based on what these 25 models are, are saying. And certain modeling groups, like the CPC, they have their, their sort of... Everybody's their favorite. Yeah, everybody's yeah. got the... For various reasons. Yep. Current forecast for El Nino uh, is is around 60, 65%, even up a little bit higher for the November, December, January, and December, January, February period. And they tend to forecast these things for three-month periods. They did. And the, actually, the... The mid-September, the most recent update, actually bounced back up again. And so their their November, December, January timeframe is a little over 70. This midwinter and then January, February, March is also a little bit over 70. So there's been a little bit of a rebound in the thinking. And again, this is the waffling we've had. A lot of these models, you know, just had this nice expression of warm temperatures in the Pacific Ocean with the expectation that the atmosphere would just fall in line or looking for some of this atmospheric coordination and um it just it just it was always the next four weeks or it was always the next month or something like that and just never sort of showed up so if you look behind the scenes at the sort of spaghetti plot as they're called and you look at all 25 of the models uh, there's a pretty widespread in terms of what the temperature will be like in the in that specific region in the in the pacific ocean all of them however are slight at least slightly above average yeah none of them are, are are below average so that at least provides some reason for not expecting um, a La Nina event exactly like and you know we see in years where you don't you know we're not worried about an El Nino or a La Nina these models will will straddle zero which is no it's basically enso neutral there's no deviation in the temperatures in that part of the Pacific Ocean and they just sort of you know, they're kind of off in both directions above and below. You know, like you said, they're they're all above average with more of them being up around one degree, which doesn't sound like much. And it, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a lot. And it would be a I'd be a, a weak borderline moderate event at best. Right. So the thresholds up. are between half a degree and a, a degree above average in this particular region would be sort yeah. of a weak. It'll be a week. Yeah. And then a, a degree to 1.5 degrees is a moderate and mm-hmm. then greater than 1.5 is, yeah. is a strong. And there are, you know, a couple models that are, you know, in the moderate range, but most of them are in the weak range. And the average of all of these models is, you know, in the, in the, in the weak range. Yeah. And there's some, there's a couple of models that have very strange, like increases in temperature late in the spring. And there's some things that make you look at them a little bit with a raised eyebrow. Like maybe I won't pay attention to them because it's that, that defies what we've seen at past events. And so, yeah, the, the clustering of those models right around one degree puts you at that borderline moderate. And again, we've talked about in the past with these events is that strength does matter the stronger the event, you know, if we were looking at a 1.5 degree above anomaly or above average temperature here with this um, region that we pay attention to, we'd be a little bit more excited about having a real, a confident wet winter signal coming into the southwest. This puts us in a little bit more of a, well, it leans us in that direction, but it also is not a slam dunk. If we come back in a month, if we don't have an El Nino by then, that we blow the forecast. I mean, will it not appear, I guess, is the is the question. We're late already. We're getting close. Yeah. I would think if October, if things haven't sort of locked in, it's going to be real tough for it to do a so where quick I'm, hit the gas. Where I'm going with this is for the, literally for the last four months, we've been saying, we'll tell you more in a month. Like we can be yeah. more definitive. We like, can we, say, like we can we can put a nail on this thing yeah. next month. I, I like that idea. And then, you know, if it doesn't show up, we'll never talk about it again. <laughs> Even if it actually shows up, we, we'll just have taken that off the table. 
Um, I do, yeah, I do think I do think next month. I think the next thirty days is going to be interesting with a lot of a lot of things here. The monsoon's wrapping up. The East Pacific is still alive, and El Nino is is on our doorstep. So it's going to be an interesting next couple of months. Yeah, for tropical storms, we still get a lot of tropical storms in October. Yeah, it doesn't end September thirtieth. Right. You know, uh, stuff is still in play here for the Southwest. You know, right through October. Next month, what we're going to do is give a comprehensive summary of the monsoon. Monsoon. We'll break and it down, play by play. We'll break play. it down, yep. monsoon in review, uh, and hopefully, you know, we won't have a destructive tropical storm, but we may have some tropical storms to talk about as well, and hopefully we'll we'll, we'll know about El Nino. Yeah, then. and, you know, maybe this will just run right into a, an interesting winter, and I just, I don't want to have to do more drought over the next winter. That'll be just too boring, so hopefully we can talk about other things. Uh, so thanks for tuning in. It is Lord Kelvin. I was wondering if it was that Kelvin. It's that Kelvin, right? It's the Kelvin that came up with the grease? Guy was everywhere. Maybe we should just convert everything to Kelvin. Well, I was just thinking that for his birthday. Is it his birthday today? No, it's not. June 26th, we should do, conduct all our business in Kelvin just for the day. I like the, that's the not get fired segment of our podcast. <laughs>